1922, one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century happened in Egypt. It was the discovery of the tomb of a young man known as King Tutankhamun. Some of you have seen the pictures. Some of you have, uh, have seen uh, the, the traveling show. I know it traveled around for a while. I think my parents went and visited it when it came through. But the, the story of Tutankhamun is interesting. But what's more interesting is his grave, right? It was this, this tomb off to the side that grave robbers hadn't pilfered yet. And so it was undisturbed since the time it was closed. It turns out that this Tutankhamun, young man though he was, was really special. He had an amazing uh, sarcophagus, a casket. But what was amazing about it is when they opened up the sarcophagus, the casket, they found another casket, even more beautiful. And so, you know, you're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Then they opened it up and found a third one, even more beautiful. And finally, a fourth one, which has this picture that you see up there. This fourth casket made of pure gold. And you're like, oh, how can we outdo that? He opens up the fourth casket and wrapped in a gold cloth with a gold face covering is the young Tutankhamun. I mean, this guy had gold to spare. And yet, when they unwrapped the body, despite its beauty, despite how gorgeous all the gold looked, what they found was a leathery, shriveled up, dead body. A disgusting, shriveled up body. No amount of gold on the outside. No amount of prestige and honors and ceremony for young Tutankhamun could change the fact that he is a leathery, shriveled, not even a, looks like a person. If you saw that laying on the floor in a forest, you would think it was a part of a root complex or something like that. You wouldn't think there's a human. And yet, this is what we see with Tutankhamun. We don't remember him as that leathery thing. We, we remember that first picture of the, the beautiful gold. And so today, as we look at this lead up to Jesus' crucifixion, we're at the beginning of his final week of ministry before his crucifixion. Last week, Pastor David talked about the, uh, the triumphal entry when they're yelling Hosanna and the crowds are getting it. He's here to save. Now, maybe they got it wrong and what kind of saving they thought he was going to do, but yet they recognized him. And now here he makes his way up to the temple. So today, we're going to look at what he does in the temple, how he brings about some changes, and then we're going to look at this really odd story at the end. So three parts, if you're a note taker, these are the three parts we're going to look at today. It's just a simple outline of our text. The first one is the temple chastening, verses 12 through 13. These will be back up here in a minute too, so if you don't get them all written down. The temple curing, verses 14 through 17. And then finally, that odd fig tree cursing, verses 18 through 22. So where are we at? So we're, we're, we're on our way into the temple complex. We're in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. Now the Jews, they had, they had holidays down. They make our Thanksgivings look pretty small by comparison. But there were three feasts that were the most important. The first one was the Passover. And this was the one that was going to be celebrated the week of Jesus' crucifixion. 
This was the most popular. It was remembering how the angel of death passed over the Israelites in Egypt and provided the last of the ten plagues, destroying, ironically, with Tutankhamun, destroying all the gods of the Egyptians and saying, your gods are no gods. Jerusalem was the heart of the Passover feast. Jerusalem had about 20 to 30,000 people living in the city. During this time, it would swell to huge numbers, some say up to 150,000. So you can imagine five times the number of people in Gladstone, what would that look like? It would be lots of camping, lots of people living in random places, you know, having people bunking out in your house. There were people everywhere. And everything centered on this one building, the temple. Now, the temple was amazing. It's 172,000 square yards. It is huge. The temple mount is the top of this mountain that has basically been cut off and leveled, and in the middle of it sits the temple. Now, this would be the second temple, the temple that Herod built to try to buy the, the admiration of the Jews. This spot, this uh, area is enormous. If you compare it to modern-day football, because that's what I do, um, you compare it to modern-day football stadiums, this is bigger than every single college stadium. That includes places like Ohio State's Horseshoe, which is 14 acres. I mean, that's a big stadium. This doubles that, nearly 40 acres of space. It's huge. There's only a few professional football stadiums that can even touch this. So it was huge. It dominates the entire city, and during this week, the Passover and everything that's going on in the temple dominates life for the Jews in this city. So let's look at our first section, the temple chastening, verses 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold. Now let's stop. He entered the temple doesn't mean he entered the actual middle of the temple. That was for priests only. Jesus had the right to go there. But what they're talking about is the temple complex, that whole 36 acres, big, huge area. Still very beautiful. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So what's going on here? This is an interesting thing. So this is how it works. When you come to Jerusalem... There are two things that you have to take care of before you can go into the temple. Two things that are a part of the temple structure. The first is to be clean. Now, this has nothing to do with sin, though sometimes when you sin, you make yourself unclean. But it's a ceremonial cleanness. It's saying, I'm entering a place of holiness. I have to be washed. And so at the temple, you would wash yourself. Then you would bring a sacrifice. And there were sacrifices going all the time in Israel. Three main ones for the whole nation, but then there were individual ones throughout the day. So, if you lived nearby, you might have brought an animal with you. But the problem is, is you'd get there and you'd have to have a pure, spotless animal, no extra blemishes, nothing wrong with it, not sickly, well-fed, because it had to cost you something. A sacrifice costs. So you'd bring it with you. Well, the problem is, is if you show up at the temple and the priests go, eh, you know, I see that little spot right there. Well, you may have bought, brought your little sheep with you, but you're not going to be able to sacrifice it. So somebody, some enterprising entrepreneur, came up with the idea, what if we sold pre-approved sheep at the temple? 
And by pre-approved, they would have the priests go through and make sure they were all clean. And so they could put a sign up that says, priest approved, sheep for sale. And so they would make a profit off this. Because, you know, I mean, it's a modest profit, but they would make money off of it. So the families would show up, and they were meeting all their needs, so that way they didn't accidentally get a bad animal and be out of luck, couldn't participate. Pigeons were also sold along with sheep. And it sounds like the people who sold pigeons sat down. They didn't stand. They weren't going to serve you. Why? Because the pigeons were sold, pigeons and doves were sold as the, the, the poor people's sacrifice. They'd have been less expensive. Now, the high priest at this time, his name was Caiaphas. We'll see him a little bit more here at the end of the week with all the crucifixion parts. Caiaphas was kind of an interesting guy. He liked to make money. He liked to have control of the money. And he realized that if the market for all these animals was outside the temple, there was, it was true capitalism, you know, high and low and you know, all that. So he said, let's move it inside the temple. And then we can regulate it, right? We can tax it. We can do what we want with it. So some say that this happened the, this year that Jesus is here. It might have happened a year before. But not only that, we got to talk about these money changers. So if you've ever been to a foreign country and you have your American dollars, which spend really well in a lot of countries, some places you have to exchange your money. Well, the same thing would happen here in the temple. People would show up and they'd come from all over the place, especially the Gentile converts, and they have their money. But their money would be unclean. Not only because of the fact that it's been handled by other Gentiles, but because on the money it would usually have a picture of a god or a political figure who also believed he was a god, right? And so you couldn't bring that into the temple, and so they would conveniently, for a small charge, exchange your money for you. And so that's going on as well. It looks like possibly they were gouging people a little bit. And so as we were going through the temple, all of this is taking place at the same time. Go ahead and go to the next slide there, Kyle. So this is what the temple looks like. That's not supposed to be that big, but there you go. So here's the temple. We have the court of women here. They have the priests could go here. This area right here, along there and there, that's the court of the Gentiles. So we're not talking about a huge area. We're not talking about all of this here. We're just talking about this little area right here. And what happened was, Caiaphas is like, well, we can't make it so that, you know, the Jews would have the buying and selling around where they want to go. No, we're going to put it where the Gentiles are. So there's this kind of like, Jews are higher than Gentiles. Even though they've converted, they've been circumcised, but they came all this way to come and worship here. And think about it. You know, if you came to church today and it was like, well, only people that donate this much can sit up here. The rest of you got to sit there. And actually, we've got a special room in the back, back there for some of you, especially if you've traveled from a long way. And this was the way that they treated the Gentiles that had come. And imagine what this looks like, right? You came to church today. Hopefully, you were surprised by our beautiful trees and, the, you know, it's warm in here and you got yourself some coffee now imagine if you came, and over here we had people buying and selling animals and all the smells that go with that. And then over here we have a stock market pit where people are like, oh, this dollar is how many for this, and, and, right? That would be such a worshipful experience. Hey, Aaron, where are you? Can we, can, I'm not Aaron. Uh, ben, can we, uh, can we do that from now on? Can we get some animals in here? I think, Aaron, you're on next week, right? Can we do some money changing and throwing? Right? So just imagine what this looks like. 
and it's only in the Gentile area. And so these Gentiles that have traveled thousands of miles to come here or in a foreign country show up and their place of worship, the only place they're allowed in the entire temple complex is run by money changers. I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a, a county fair and a stock exchange together, right? So this is a really interesting situation Jesus finds himself in. Now, some here will say this is why we should be against selling things, right? But notice, it doesn't say that Jesus drove out the sellers only. It says the sellers and the buyers. So not only the people that are making money off it, but the people who said, I'm going to take the easy way out, and I'm not going to bring this sheep that I named that my daughter loves, right? I'm not going to bring this prized sheep and sacrifice it. I'm just going to pay a little bit of money, make it a little bit pain, painless, right, a little easier. See, the problem here is it's not the buying and selling. This is not a, a screed by uh, Jesus against capitalism. This is a disgust, a disgust in his mind for the temple being corrupted. In John chapter 2, there was a previous clearing of the temple when Jesus first started his ministry. A little bit different situation, but still, there's two of them, one at the beginning and one at the end. And in this, Jesus is being like the kings of David's line. Hezekiah, when he became king, he came in and threw out some stuff out of the temple. Same thing for Josiah, got rid of false things that shouldn't have been there. So Jesus driving out these merchants is saying, not only am I your king, like we saw last week, marching in on a donkey and the Hosanna stuff, but he's a priest. He's the Lord. He's the judge. And if we think about it, this is kind of a preview of coming attractions for us. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to do the same thing to our churches and to our world. He's going to come in and he's going to purify He's going to throw out what is not truly his. Spurgeon writes, what a prophecy this incident affords of the ease with which in Jesus' second advent, second time he comes, Christ will purge his floor with the fan of his hand. That's kind of a weird way to say it. He's just going to go purged and it's done. What an interesting picture. It changes how we think about Jesus returning. Throughout this section, verse 13 especially, there's Old Testament quotes. My house will be called a house of prayer. is from Isaiah. The den of robbers comes from uh, Jeremiah 7. So I want to click in on this den, den of robbers thing. You know, when I thought of this, I thought it's like, well, a den of robbers, this is where they do all their robbing. And it, that's not quite what that means. And, and it's right there in the text, but sometimes we kind of just have read it and become so familiar with it that we miss it. The literal translation of this is a cave of insurrectionists or a cave of bandits. And I was kind of like, okay, but what, what's the deal with the cave? And then I thought about it and I was like, what are dens? Dens are not where you go to do the stealing. It's where you go to relax and enjoy what you've stolen. So that kind of changes what's going on here in this text. Right? Now, Jesus did throw them out, and they were stealing, and there was some, some impropriety there. But really, if this was all about stealing, he would have said, you've made this a market for thieves. You've made this a dark alley for bandits. You've made this a stagecoach for the outlaws. Right? I mean, he could have gone all sorts of different directions with this, but he says, this is a den of thieves, a place where you go and you have, you know, enjoy what you've stolen. 
I think that's interesting. Go and count your stealings. Go and enjoy. What did we get this time? Thieves don't do their robbing in their den. The den is the place where they hide out. So here, Jesus is not just denouncing the stealing and the buying and selling and the sound of the animals and the sound of the money clinking. Rather, he's denouncing the false security that the Jews have in thinking, we have the temple, we're fine. We don't have to worry about anything. The temple is not where you go and you just do something in order to be right with God. No, it's the repentance that you feel first that when you go, you show through a sacrifice. Remember, the blood and goats does not, blood of goats and rams and sheep and pigeons doesn't change anything. It's the heart that needs to change. See, the, the Jews at Jesus' time, they would go and live like hellions during the week, but they'd go, hey, no worries, I can go to the temple and get rid of my sins. Jesus is reminding them, this is not the purpose of this temple. And he's going to show it. And so getting this den as a place to hide and feel comfortable helps us understand that weird story we're going to get to in just a minute about the fig tree. Now let's look at the second point, the temple curing. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now this is a little hard for us to see because we wouldn't have gotten this just looking at it. Like there's no, there's no roadblocks at the front door of our church that say if you're blind or if you're lame or if you can't hear or anything else, we have to keep you out. We don't have that. And if anybody does that, please come see me. They're going to have a stern talking to you. But that's not what we do here, right? And we don't understand that. But at the temple, many times a blind person, a lame person, a mute person, a deaf person, a person with any sort of disability was a not allowed in. And so what Jesus has done is he's gone in and grabbed all these people that are allowed in by the high priest and says, you all get out of here. And then he takes the people that were not allowed in and he brings them in and he says, this is where you need to be. This is where healing happens. See, the, the, these, these people with the disabilities, they would have gotten in the way of the worship that was going on in the temple. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way this works. So he brings them in, and this is Jesus' last recorded healing in the entire book of Matthew. Does that mean he didn't heal anybody else? No, but Matthew wants us to recognize Jesus is healing the temple. He's bringing the temple back to what it was supposed to be. The temple was a place for us to commune with God and to be healed of our problem with God. And Jesus is moving to fix that. Many of the people in Jesus' time idolized the temple. The temple became something they worshipped. They, they would make confessions and they would say, I swear by the temple, because it was what they saw as made them right. Not their heart towards God, but that building. Now, for many of us, we don't feel this. We don't swear by New Life Church Gladstone. But where are we putting our trust? So I think the lesson here for us is, where are we putting our trust? What are we putting it in? Where's your hope? Is it in a place? Is it in a thing? How about in an experience? Is your hope in something that you experienced in the past, so therefore you feel like you are okay now? Many of us don't cling to a place, but we do cling to a past mountaintop experience. 
Now, praise the Lord. The Lord has given you that. The Lord has met you at some point, and he's been extra close to you. Here's the thing, is that we don't have to go to mountaintops to get God. God is with us everywhere. And yes, we have those times when he feels extra close to us, but there is nothing in the way of us feeling that on a daily basis. The Lord wants us to walk with him and grow deeper with him. See, experiences can be misleading. They can give us a false hope. Think about some of the things in your past that you might even hold out as like, I did this, right? Okay, 10 years ago, you ran a half marathon. You did. All right, let's go. Let's see what you can do right now. Some of you won't get out of the, I won't get out of the parking lot without pulling a hamstring, right? Few of you could definitely do a half marathon right now. 20 years ago, you were in a play in college. You were a great Hamlet. Wow. 20 years ago. All right, come on up. Let's hear a couple, a couple of the longer portions. Act it all out. How about 30 years ago? You were in piano lessons as a kid, and you learned Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. All right, piano's right here. Let's go. Volunteers? Anybody? Right? So these past experiences are impressive. They're amazing. But they don't reveal anything about the right here, right now. See, this is the thing we have to understand. The way we know we're right with the Lord is we continue to pursue him. We continue to walk with him. We have lots and lots of past memories. Some are sweet, some are bitter, but that's what they are. They're in the past. The temple dominates the landscape in Jerusalem, meaning the people made all of their directional decisions based on that temple. It dominates the skyline. The temple is what God should be in our lives today. He should be dominating our lives. We should never lose, lose sight or leave sight of the temple. It's right there. And for us, it's God. It can't be, well, I, I knew God back here when I had this encounter at church camp when I was in junior high. Well, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know the Lord? Well, I had that encounter back there. Well, why don't you have that right now? The only thing getting in the way is you. Now, I'm not saying you got to go back to that church camp and be a, you know, a 50-year-old at a church camp with a bunch of junior hires. That's not a good idea. But what I am saying is that God doesn't change. We get all these other things in the way, and we get all these things that we put out there when the God of the universe simply wants our hearts. He earned our hearts. We cannot live by a past performance. We cannot live by a ritual we do once a week. We cannot live by something that we outwardly do. It has to go to the heart. Unless you think this is only a New Testament thing, right? Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, it's there throughout, and the Jews in Jesus' time had lost that. They had lost that it wasn't about what you do outwardly. That does matter. You do take care of people, and God says you need to do these things, but if it never reaches the heart, then it's false religion. It's hypocrisy. And the church, just like the temple before it, was to be a place to heal the nations. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. I love that Matthew throws that word wonderful in there. Matthew's going, this was great. This was amazing. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Look at that. Wonderful things and were indignant, right? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. 
Have you never read? Again, quoting the Bible back to the Pharisees. I love it. And the, and the scribes. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He quotes Psalm 8-2 to them and says, Don't you know that the children are going to cry out? They're the ones that see more clearly than you educated. This word Hosanna is directed to God alone. And the teachers are saying, you can't claim that. You can't do that. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Children are going to cry out to me. And if we're honest, the children's worship is beautiful, isn't it? It's innocent. Yeah, it might be a little shallow, right? But they're not missing the point, right? They're, They're getting what's there. They're not worried about theological conundrums or doubts. They're just going, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I love it. We must never stifle a child's worship. I love it. At the end of our service, our children all come in and they sing with us in the last song. I love hearing the children sing. On Christmas Eve, we're going to have a a morning service and an evening service, and both of those are going to be family services where all of the kids are in here. And I just love their excitement. And it's, it's, they're excited even when it's not Christmas, but even more so then. This worshiping of Jesus, that's what we're to be like. Verse 17, after leaving them and leaving them, he went to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Bethany is a, a city just over the Mount of Olives. It's two miles away. You might remember this. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were from. So Jesus might be going and visiting them again. So we've seen the temple has been chastened. The temple has now been cured. And now we get the weird part. The fig tree cursing. Verses 18 through 22. In the morning, so he'd stayed the night in Bethany. We're now on either Tuesday or Wednesday. Probably Tuesday. As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. The fig withered, and the fig withered at once. You know, Snickers has a, uh, a line of commercials um, in which a normal person turns into Joe Pesci or some other grumpy older uh, actor, and uh, they say, you're hangry, take a Snickers, it satisfies. This kind of looks like what's happening here. It kind of looks like Jesus is a little hangry and he needs something to eat. But that can't be what's going on here. Bertrand Russell, a famous philosopher, uh, says that Jesus was full of vindictive fury and that he was acting like a spoiled child who did not get his way. Yikes. There are only one or two instances in the Bible where Jesus does a miracle that's destructive. Right? We can think of the, the pigs getting into the, going into the water. We can think of a few others, but really not many, not many times does Jesus make his creatures suffer to teach people a lesson. So envision this. This is what Jesus is doing. He's walking down the hill. The temple is out in front of him. They're walking down the hill of the Kidron Valley, and he looks and he sees a tree. Now, a fig tree, to be called a tree, it would need to be good size. And usually they're between 16 and 33 feet tall. So we're talking about a one and a half to three-story building. It could be as tall as this room, if not taller. This tree would be leafy and healthy. Now, the way figs work is that figs grow their leaf and their fruit at the same time. And in this time of the year, about March-ish, when this is happening, the fig uh, fruit would have been small but edible and very full of nutrients. It actually was a great snack. Now, the figs later are the ones that they make the Newtons out of, right? They're the ones that are actually sweeter and actually taste good. 
This one is not very tasty, but it's very healthy. And they're called pagim, and they still have them to this day. But in spite of there being leaves and seeing the size of the tree, Jesus goes up and finds no evidence of that early fruit. A fruit tree with all the signs of fruit, but no fruit. Totally fruitless. Now, this was not Jesus being hangry, nor was it Jesus being rude or a vindictive child. No, Jesus, the God of the universe, who created with God the Father everything, made this fig tree at this moment fruitless so that he could teach a parable, an acted-out parable, right? Where And we don't ever see this because none of our pastors have the superhuman power to change a tree and be like, here's your sermon, right? Here's the tree. But Jesus can do that. He's the epic teacher who comes along and he goes, yeah, I know how long this tree's been here. I know it's original, the fig, and I know all the other ones that led to this tree at this moment with no fruit. And so Jesus goes, look at this tree. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's full. It's got leaves on it. It's epic. But it has zero fruit, so it's worthless. It only appeared to be beautiful. But in actuality, it's not. J.C. Ryle says, this is a heart-searching lesson in that fig tree. It preaches a sermon that we would all do well to hear. So what do figs represent in the Bible? Well, Micah 7, 1 and 2 starts off in verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. But Micah in verse 2 explains that this is a, a, a sin and righteousness thing. The godly has perished from the earth. There was no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. So this no fruit is that they are sinning and they're being foul. So this is a spiritual food that he's talking about. He's saying this fig tree is standing in for you. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he's standing there looking at the tree and going, see this fig tree? Huh? See the temple? It's right there. Here's the fig tree. Are you guys getting this? Everything looked like it was right. The Jews had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the scriptures. They had all the trappings of good religion. They looked really good on the outside, but they were missing the point. They were missing grace and faith and love and humility and spirituality and real holiness. And they were missing a willingness to welcome the Messiah. See, the Jews in this time were stuck with their place. And we need to make sure we're not stuck in the same situation. Carson writes, the point of this tree is by its leaves to announce that it's bearing fruit when in fact it was not. The cursing of the tree became a model that pronounces judgment on religious hypocrites, people who make a show of piety but have no genuine fruit of piety. So I've heard it said before, and, and, I, and I like it. I think it's good. If you're here today and you're a sinner and you're a hypocrite, welcome. We're all sinners and hypocrites. And I think that's true, and that's apt. We do not stand for the things we say we should stand for, and we all sin in that way. Now, do we, should we stay there? Absolutely not. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, hey, you made this standard. You like said, hey, I'm never going to do this, and then you did it. And of course, your kids pointed out. But you, you know, you, it's not like that. Instead, this is religious hypocrisy. And the Bible and Jesus define hypocrisy way more strictly, and they punish it. 
A real hypocrite is the one who appeases the gods in their life, all the gods they worship for the six days a week, but gives lip service to the God of the universe on Sunday. Think about that. That's what true hypocrisy is. It's coming here, cleaning yourself up to say, hey, I'm doing fine, and then throughout the week, worshiping the gods of this world. Jesus is saying, I am talking to you who rob God throughout the week by doing things you ought not to do and do, not doing the things you're supposed to do and then going to church to find sanctuary as you hide behind the trappings of church. There is no fear of God before your eyes. So this is, this is what we need to get here, is that there is no religious practice that we do here at this church that makes us right with God. We are made right through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and living in that and then responding correctly to that. We have lots of fruitless leaves in the church as we know it. The leaf of baptism, the leaf of membership, the leaf of praying. The all-seeing God sees right through the leaves. You are laid bare before the Lord. The leaves don't fool him. They may fool each other, we may fool each other, but the fruit is the thing that he is wanting. And look at the final, it's judgment. He says, he curses the tree, the tree is judged. Every fruitless branch in Christ's church is in dreadful danger of judgment. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, we did this a year, year and a half ago. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear fruit, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. See, we can grow and become a healthy-looking church. We all can grow and become healthy-looking families and healthy-looking Christians and healthy-looking Bible-devoted people. But if we're not actively killing sin in our lives, if we're not actively loving and following and walking with our God, we are just playing at it. We are the worst kind of hypocrites. Are we doing what we know we're supposed to do when no one's looking? Are we realizing that we can read our Bible, but we don't have to do it on the, on the U version so everybody sees it? Are we realizing that, that you need to be praying and spending time in the Word, and not just when you're at a prayer meeting, not just with other people looking, but on your own? A good and vibrant church full of people who don't know the Lord is a graveyard. It's dead. And we must not settle against that, settle for that. We must swim against the world. We must pursue the Lord with all our hearts and with all our might. So what kind of fruit are you seeing in your life right now? Now, this isn't rocket science. Like it, throughout the Bible, it says this is what it looks like. We can't put those things in front and say, if I do these things, I'm right. We say, am I right with the Lord? If I'm not, ask the Lord for help, and he gives you the fruit. Right? I've just preached to you moralism, which is you have to do it. Now, don't get me wrong, you do have to do it. But the good news is you don't do it alone. 
Now, I'm not going to say, oh, hey, it's, we're all going to do it together. Yes, we are. That's true. But it's even better than that, right? Because the good news is, is that we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us. See, think about this for a sec. God has every right to go, okay, y'all listen up. I'm not sure why I said y'all. But anyway, y'all listen up. I did all the heavy lifting. I sent Jesus. He died. He rose again. I created the universe. I defeated sin. Now you all get to work. You have to earn this from me. Now God has every right to do that, doesn't he? He's the God of the universe. But instead, he said, I've done all the heavy lifting. I've taken away your sin. I've lived the perfect life in your place. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit, who will take up residence inside of you, who will make you the temple of my Spirit on earth, way better than Herod's temple. He's going to live inside of you, and he is going to be the dynamis, the power inside of us to be able to do it. Look at what Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, God made us, created in Christ Jesus. So there's the, there's the gospel. We are his because of Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we will walk in them, that we should walk in them. So God has laid out all the good works in front of you, and all you got to do is walk in them. Acts 1.8, to the disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you surrender your rebellion against the true God, he comes in and he lives inside of you and gives you the ability to follow his commands. Isn't that the best deal you've ever heard? So we must be wary of the fruitless professor of Christianity. This is not for us to go on a witch hunt and find the people around us who have the leaves of religion. No, it's to look inside and go, am I faking this? Is this just something that I do to make me feel like I'm going where I'm supposed to? Or is this true obedience? Jesus judges the false religion and those who put forth a good look on the outside and neglect the inside. Hypocrisy is when we say, what I look like on the outside is the most important. I want everybody to think really well of me. It's more important for my reputation to be good than my sanctification to be good. Now, here's the problem with that. And you're like, what's the big deal? I want people to like me. Yes, but here's the problem. If you put up this facade and you say, I'm fine, I, I'm okay, I look great, what is not happening is confession of sin. And repentance. And one of the things, we're to confess to each other. We're to, we're to say, here's where I've struggled. Help me. Pray with me. But we're definitely to do that to God. And the longer we go in our hypocrisy, the more walls we put up and the more dead to sin we become. And the repentance that we so desperately need, that we need to repent and say, Lord, break the wall between me and you. So that's what sin does. Sin builds up walls between us and God. And when we're hypocrites, we're pretending we don't have any walls and everything's fine. And the more you go on pretending, the longer those walls get bigger and stronger, they're going to be impregnable. You're not even going to see them. In fact, the Bible says this is spiritual leprosy, which is where you're dead to it. You don't feel it anymore. And so this hypocrisy is not just, oh, it's another thing we rail on in churches. No, this is life. 
If you want to live, you got to repent of your hypocrisy because it's numbing you to the sin that God's pointing out to you. Jesus is here cursing those who are spiritually barren. True disciples are fruitful. They, have, they do everything they can to pursue growing of fruit. So now, how do the disciples respond? Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? This is interesting. There's some references to Jeremiah and Micah in here. But the disciples are asking the wrong question. The how is easy. That's the easy question, because Jesus said so, right? Okay, he made it. He can do what he wants with it. But instead, they should have been asking, why? Or, what are you teaching us here, Jesus? And so Jesus, being the, 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 the wisdom incarnate, he answers the question they should have been asking. Verse 21, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is one of those difficult uh, sections because people pull this verse out of context and say, if you just pray this way, you're going to get it. That's not what this is saying. But before we get to that, what is this whole doubt thing? Because I have doubts. Does anybody in here not have doubts? Isn't doubting bad? Isn't doubting a sin? He says, if you don't doubt, I mean, it seems to be saying the same thing. The thing about doubt is doubt is natural, but it's what we do with it that decides what it is. You can doubt something and then go, well, okay, I'm going to pursue this. There you go. That's the way to go. But if you let it fester, doubt becomes unbelief. And the Bible is very solidly against unbelief. Unbelief is, I won't believe. Doubt is, I can't believe right now. I need some help. Doubt that's undetended leads to unbelief. Doubt without faith is unbelief. And so Christ is saying, you are going to have doubts, but faith is the answer. Faith is the way through. This is why we have Scripture, to remind us of the things that have been done, to see the promises that are coming, so that the here and now we can live in faith. Remember this quote from a Puritan, every step towards Christ kills a doubt. Every step I take towards Christ kills a doubt in my life. So what is this all about here? What is the faith that he's talking about? And what is this moving of mountains and receiving? Well, first of all, remember where he is. He's coming down the hill. He's just looked at the fig tree, right? He's standing on a mountain. I don't think he's talking about the Mount of Olives. Because remember, what dominates everything in Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. And so Jesus goes, with faith, you can move this mountain. I think he's pointing at Jerusalem, at Mount Zion. And what he's saying is, he's saying, this metaphorical mountain of vain religion, this beautiful artifice of what it looks like to worship with your mouth but not with your heart, Jesus says, with faith you can move that. You can break that down and make it so that you have a real living faith. Not physically destroy it and throw it into the, 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 the ocean, but why not? If God wanted to do that, he can but Christ is telling them, you will receive what you ask from me in faith. And one of the things you need to pray for is that this temple, this fake religion gets destroyed. Not, not literally, but destroyed as in it gets back to what it was meant to do. It's noteworthy that we read this and we go, ooh, I can pray for whatever I want. Yes, I'm going to get that Tesla that I've always wanted. I'm going to get that big house in the hills. I'm going to get that, I'll just move to Hawaii. I'm not going to visit. I'm just going to go. And stay there. 
Notice that the disciples who heard this never prayed that way. They never prayed for grandiose things. They simply prayed, Lord, your will be done and help me to be in line with your will. That's how they prayed. Part of the faith in trusting God to do what is most fitting for him. We have confidence and we have trust in him. So receiving powerful things from God starts with believing he is able. So today if you're here and you're like, I've played, I've played religion for my whole life. That seems like an awful big mountain. You've got walls up all over the place. You can't remember the last time you repented. Well, guess what? That mountain can be picked up and thrown into the sea by our God. All it takes is a spark of faith. Faith alone can move the mountain where dead religion flourishes. Jesus told his disciples that faith can move the temple mount. He reinforced it with the fig. He showed them that false religion, outside religion, fake religion needs to die, but it needs to be replaced with true religion. Let us not be today like King Tutankhamun. Let us not be alive, let us be alive on the outside, I mean, sorry, let us not be fake alive on the outside, but yet dead on the inside. Instead, let's truly live from inside out so that our insides match this thing that we put out for everybody to see here at church. Let's be true to the God we serve. Let's be true to the God who saved us. Let's be true to the God who took our place, who took our well-deserved judgment and gave us his well-earned inheritance. This is an inheritance we can't repay, but let us treat our king well by being his servants today, tomorrow, and every day after that. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are hard. We worry way too much about what people around us think. We worry way too much about what the culture thinks of us, about coworkers, about neighbors, thinking we're weird, thinking we're strange because of our walk with you. But Lord, I pray that you would break that down, that the people that we are on the inside would match the outside. The veneer that we put on, I pray that it would be matched by a true love for you. Lord, all, all I've got is words, but you have your Holy Spirit that can do a mighty work. So I pray, Lord, that you would unleash that now. Unleash that on all of us. We need it so bad. We are big, big religious hypocrites. So Lord, please come and meet us here now. Do a work on us now as we finish with song. And Lord, thank you for sending your spirit to live in us. In your name, amen.